Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Robin, thanks for coming on the show here. Happy to see you again. Yeah, um, you've you've touched on in the, the the stuff you read about. You talk about lots of different topics. And I do. One of one of my find real interesting is this topic of um, becoming an expert. And how does how does somebody become an expert, and what qualifies them as an expert? Uh, well, there there are competing concepts. And that's the key thing, that is fundamentally the, the concept might, from the customer's point of view, a concept might be the person who knows more about a subject. <laughs> so if, if we said, you know, before you try to build a shed or, you know, fix your car or something, you know, consult an expert on the subject, that concept is about, well, make sure you talk to somebody who knows about whatever you're doing, uh, as opposed to someone who doesn't know. <laughs> And so that concept of expert, people could be expert on a particular topic at a particular time. It would be a fine grain thing that uh, you would be experts on different things at different moments relative to different tasks and different uh, audiences. Uh, that's one concept of expert from the point of view of someone who, who, who wants to do something and likes advice. But uh, a different related concept of expert is the way we credential people as officially knowledgeable about something. Okay. And when we do that, we, we are much more coarse grained about it. We pick large categories of topics and then we take some people, and we declare them sort of experts on those whole categories across a wide range of contexts and across many years. And we have a system for officially declaring who is an expert on such things. Okay, I'm glad you and, brought that topic up because um, we, we've been, I've been speculating on this idea that I think that sometime in the near future, we're gonna, somebody's going to create an equivalency scale that's outside of uh, academia. That's uh, at what point do you reach the equivalent of a of a bachelor's degree or master's or PhD? And um, in uh, we were talking through this in different ways and trying to understand exactly what constitutes a learning unit and um, how the system works right now, which is uh, seems to be uh, rather opaque for somebody looking at it from the outside. Is there a way of enlightening us on that? Well, first, you should just realize how remarkable are the achievement we've had so far and how difficult is the problem. <laughs> so if, if you just think about like people doing various jobs, uh, people can you know be good at their job, but their job can be pretty context dependent. <laughs> so right. you could be good at an oil platform in in you know, in Louisiana, that doesn't mean you're good at an oil platform in the North Sea or in Indonesia if they're made in different ways. Right. Uh, you know, so the world of people doing particular jobs can be very specialized. And so, you know, uh, you would need a very fine-grained taxonomy to describe who was good at what, and, and then that could vary, right? Somebody who was good at the oil rig three years ago might not be good today if the rig has changed. Uh, Right. And so, okay. and so you have to realize, like, firms have to go to a lot of work to decide who's good at any one job, and it's it's not trivial at all. And then they do only a crude job of it. <laughs> they have to decide who to have do a job, and they're not entirely sure the person they have doing the job is, in fact, the best person for that job. And they're relying on the people around them to tell them who they think is better at the job, but they have all sorts of personal stakes involved. So. We struggle even in that sort of a world to figure out who to put in charge of which jobs. And then when we try to make decisions, ask who to listen to there. And so that's you know the state of the art in terms of 
ordinary jobs. And then we have this whole separate system where we call somebody a historian or an economist or, or a physicist. <laughs> and it's not based on sort of the people around them doing a job telling us who they think is good at something. It's based on this whole separate system <laughs> of people you know, going to school and taking classes and getting graded and, you know, getting submitting things to journals, et cetera. And so you know, that whole separate system seems in many ways to be designed in order to produce a shared evaluation that is less context dependent. That is, if somebody says you're a historian, <laughs> then that works not just in this particular dig or in this particular archive. It's, it's a thing that we declare about you in this wider context because you took certain set of tests maybe or, or assignments that lots of other people take pretty much the same test or assignment and we can then compare you to them we've got these official people we've designated as the ones to decide who should be allowed to call a historian and you can see it's just a whole separate system <laughs> and yeah. it has the virtue of being more comparable so there's this whole issue of school why, why do we have so many people going to school because they don't actually seem to learn that much at school but employers, when they're trying to decide who is a good employee, it's hard to go with just the people around someone on the job saying they thought they were good at the job if that job is sort of far from the job they're looking at. <laughs> uh, okay. So whereas with students who have gone to a certain school, like all the people who went to the University of Cincinnati who got a degree in history, right? they're comparable in some sense, they, you okay. know, there's an A average or B average or something. And so there's something, you know, that we've designed these school systems exactly to produce comparable rankings in a way that ordinary jobs don't. Yeah. Ordinary jobs, you could be good at a job, but who knows how your that job compares to some other job because they're also different. And it's hard to really compare people across a wide range of jobs when they've just done some job. And schools are much more comparable on the one hand, which is great. On the other hand, they're just much less useful. <laughs> it's, it's just much less clear that people who have been you know, ranked by schools or declared by schools to be expert in something are actually good at other useful things. <laughs> okay, so uh, you you have the title of becoming uh, being an economist. Right. As an economist, you seem to color outside the lines way more than any other economist I've run into. Um, you well, right. Uh, I'm, I'm much less interested in sort of being an economist like other economists. That is, so one of the nice things about our you know professor system is that you once you get tenure, you have a lot of freedom, and most professors don't use that freedom as much as they could. But I'm using that freedom more to the max, which just <laughs> means I can study whatever I want, however I want. Okay, And I don't necessarily have to please anyone. And so I less have to sort of try to please the other economists. I can more just ask what's, what are the interesting questions and what yeah. would be the interesting ways to pursue them and just be a general scholar. But yeah. that's not the very popular approach. Yeah, I, I notice that you're still titled an associate professor. At what point do you lose the associate um, word well, there's three rankings. There's assistant, associate, and full. And so, you know, at my university, the, the difference between associate and full is relatively small in terms of wages. And okay. you, know, you get more of, of committee assignments and things like that. So it's less clear it's actually a good thing to get, but it, it'd be some sort of a <laughs> oh, um, okay. yeah, prestige just... association. Um, yeah, I was, I was just, I, I've seen so many um, people I consider professors with the title associate. So I was trying to understand that better. Uh, well, so associate does indicate typically that they're tenured. So assistant would mean they're sort of initial, and, but you know whether they've gotten tenure, will get tenure is still up for grabs. And associate would be the point when they get tenure. So that would be the, sort of the main distinction. Again, once oh. you get tenure, then you're sort of, you've got this job for life and you've got a lot of discretion, freedom of how to do it. Yeah. Uh, whereas assistant, you're sort of on pro, a limited time probation before you know, people decide whether to give you tenure. So what's your assessment of the state of academia today? Um, there's lots, lots of critics. There's students are having second thoughts. There's all the criticism of student loans. Um, and you're kind of caught in the middle of all this. Um, from the Looking from the inside out, how do you um assess the situation today well so again 
academia is designed to be the system whose main product is these shared evaluations of people as you know being good at certain sorts of standardized things yeah. and that system is pretty stable okay. that is it's been in a similar form for a really long time and it doesn't really need to adapt to the world because it's not actually trying to be that useful in any concrete way. It's mainly trying to credential these people as, as impressive people in certain standard ways. So academia is going to stay around for a long time yeah. in something close to its existing form. So, I, I mean, there are great many great criticisms to make of academia, but they're criticisms that applied also a long time ago and will continue to apply to a long time in the future. Okay. So, which which are basically of the form like academia isn't really trying to be useful. It's you know it, it likes to claim credit for innovation and you know advancing insights and, and progress, etc. But it's not really doing that. It's mainly credentialing people as being impressive, and it, and it does a good job of that. And there's enough customers for that, that it will continue to, to have them. So the fraction of people say who go to college has been rising and the sort of competitiveness of trying to get into colleges has been rising and uh, the amount of money colleges are able to charge people for going there has been rising. So ma many people have been saying something like academia is like about to die or it's about to be overtaken or outcompeted by new tech rivals or something, but, but I don't see that, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, it would be exciting if it were, <laughs> but um, it seems like it's pretty stable and going to continue on for a pretty long time in the way it is, which isn't okay. necessarily a good thing. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty large waste of resources, in a sense, to have all these people doing all this stuff that isn't really directed at much useful, but... Yeah, so I've, I've been speculating freedom to, uh, you know, to pursue some interesting things. Yeah, I've been speculating a lot on um, kind of an AI driven system that um, is able to assess through a pair of smart glasses is able to assess the salient pieces of wisdom that's entering your mind um, and being able to uh, uh, somehow categorize that and and turn that into a quantifiable amount of information that's coming in. I mean, the average person is ex, uh, consuming information over 12 hours every day. So, um, and not all of it is useful naturally, but uh, some of it is. And so if there's a way of quantifying it in some uh, measurable way, is is that a way to directly compete with formal academia? Well, here's what I think might have a better shot at competing. Imagine like some big firms like Google or Microsoft or, or you know places like that. If they you know offered people who are about to go into college the option to sort of work for them instead for four years. Okay. And then they gave them a set of jobs that were, they worked harder to make be standardized across these different companies. <laughs> so they worked out a classification system of the different kinds of tasks they could be doing and the different kinds of levels of, of you know, assignment for those tasks or something. And then that could be more like a substitute for college. So, so again, the key thing that education does compared to jobs is make comparable standardized evaluations where people are from a wide range of context, if they've taken like an English class or something and read certain books and written certain essays, then their grades can be more comparable. And that's why people are interested in hiring people who, who have those rankings because they can be compared. And so the problem with, if you just go work at Google without this is that you can say you work for Google, but nobody really knows what that means in terms of right. what tasks did you do and how good, how well were you compared to other people who are working there, et cetera, or uh, how well you were compared to people working at Microsoft, say. Yeah. So if they could organize to sort of create more standardized, comparable slot, job slots and comparable evaluations of people in those slots, yeah. then it could more potentially substitute for school yeah. because it would be producing these standardized, comparable ratings of people. So th yeah. this doesn't need AI, but it does need an attention to the 
to the jobs where you, you, you sacrifice productivity to some degree to standardize the jobs. Yeah. And you also sacrifice privacy of the firm to some degree to sort of be able to post the evaluations. Yeah. So, you know, a thing that you also don't get out of private firms is they they don't want to tell you how their employee did. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Uh, because that might reveal secrets about how they do things, right? And so schools give you this public grade that you can take elsewhere and, and brag about, and it's comparable across people. So I like that. I like to ask the question, if somebody reads a thousand books, is that a equivalent to a bachelor's degree, or if somebody watches a thousand movies, is that equivalent to a bachelor's degree? And, and the, the answer is it depends on the movies or the books. Uh, well, it would also depend more on what you did after you read them. Exactly. How, yeah. You know, did you write something about them? Did you write a review? Did you, you know, were you tested on them? Did you sort of build on them in some way, you know, comprehension? We, we don't want you just to have read or watched them. We want you to have integrated them into your thinking. Right, right. And so there's there's lots lots of forms of learning that are happening that um, that anyway, this is um, this opened the door for for lots of interesting questions, I think, as as the the critics of higher education are are constantly saying it's too expensive right now. and um, well, and well, but it has always been expensive. I mean, so <laughs> the expense is part of the appeal in some sense. That is, right. You know, <laughs> so, so the, I mean, it's, there's this what's called the signaling model of education. So the idea is, uh, it even if you don't learn anything there that's useful, the people who do better are actually more impressive. Then you can want to hire the people who do better at it, even if they haven't actually learned something. They've been filtered or selected through the process, and oh. so. You know, but they could try harder or spend longer at it. And so it's it's becomes, you know, one of these gauntlets that we put out, something that that is troubled, but exactly so we live longer and therefore it's worth spending a longer time in our youth to sort of prove who we are before we get very specialized. And yeah. so I think that's a natural result of getting richer and getting living longer, is that we're going to spend more time proving ourselves early in life through somewhat useless ways. <laughs> um, so switching gears a little bit here, um, uh, I was watching an interview you did on the Fermi paradox, which I found to be a, a rather interesting commentary on um, uh, who who we are and how we've ended up here in this remote area of the the universe and. Um, and uh, some of your thinking behind that. Can you you explain a little bit about your theories on the Fermi paradox? Well, so first, what I just have is a reframing or redescription of the problem that everybody. So the Fermi question, as okay. it's called, <laughs> is the, basically where is everybody? So, you know, he said, look, if there's this huge universe out there. If we're not that atypical, then there's other creatures like us out there, but then wouldn't they start leaving their home and spreading out and doing things and maybe eventually getting here or you know, make doing things that are visible out there, but we see nothing whatsoever at all yeah. uh, of anything other than just pure dead, dead matter in the universe. So his question was, where is everybody? So. Yeah. My contribution, my first contribution was to sort of reframe that question in terms of what I called the great filter. So okay. the question then is, you know, there's this huge universe and everywhere it starts out dead. And then each place slowly can evolve or change over time. So it might initially have some biochemical processes and then they might be the very simplest forms of life and then it might later become more complicated forms of life and then it might have multicellularity and sexual reproduction and eukaryotes and eventually intelligence like us and social intelligence and tool using and then after our point we could get more advanced and more developed and then we could leave home and go start to go out and make a really big impact and that's a whole process. And the, the key observation is lots of things start at the beginning of that process, like a whole universe of things. Yeah. <laughs> Almost nothing makes it to the end. That is, there's clearly a, a huge winnowing off <laughs> of okay. things going down this path. 
Uh, and most of the universe hasn't gotten very far down that path so far. Uh, because if, if even a couple of other places had gotten all the way to the end of that path, then we'd see them out there. Right. And so right. that's the great filter is, is whatever it is that makes it hard to go down that path. And we are only partially down that path. So we have only partially passed through the great filter. Okay. And that raises the question, how much of the filter lies ahead of us? Okay. And it's a, it's a sobering question because say, if you look out there and you think maybe there's 10 to the 20 planets out there that could have you know, gone all the way through the filter, uh, that's huge, right? And so if, if only one part in 10 of that filter lies ahead of us, say we're through 90% of it, well, then there's still 10 to the two or a hundred, a factor of a hundred remaining in front of us, which means we only have a 1% chance of making it to the end. Yeah. So, so the, the filter is so large that even if just a small fraction lies ahead of us, that suggests we, we aren't going to make it. So I, I came at this from a little bit different perspective, um, thinking about if somebody, if, if an organism um, was raised on another planet, they would be raised with different gravity. They would have a different atmosphere. They would have uh, different food sources. They would have different threats. Um, and you start going down this. And, um, and if you go back to the Drake equation, um, Dr. Frank Drake in 1961 came up with the, the Drake equation, guessing that there was so many uh, planets uh, throughout the universe. And the reality is, is um, that he never, uh, part of the Drake equation was never the magnetosphere. The magnetosphere is the uh, uh, kind of the magnetic fields around the earth that hold the, the atmosphere in. And, and so um, there, there's been very little um, kind of thought, I guess, uh going into that that area so the reality is in my mind is if we find some living organist there's aliens on other planets they aren't going to look like us um uh they will have totally different motivations different goals different um uh different attributes than anything that we think is human I mean, Hollywood likes to portray aliens as you just put a few crazy features on a person's face and you're an alien. Uh, I don't think anything would be recognizable once once we find an actual alien. <laughs> uh, is is that a, a reasonable assessment or is am I way off base? So our understanding of biology and of society I, I'm an economist, so I, you know, economists specialize in understanding societies. Uh, like with many sorts of systems, uh, we understand both convergence and divergence of different kinds of features. Okay. So, for example, um, think of cars. Um, you can make a huge variety of cars. They can be made in enormous number of colors and, and, and textures on the side and, and even somewhat different shapes. But if they are to function as cars, then that will cause a convergence in cars to be somewhat similar with respect to the key things that they need to do to be a car. And if there's some sort of competitive industry producing cars, facing costs and facing a similar set of customers, then the shared costs they face and the shared customers they face can also produce a convergence of the car designs they offer so that cars are recognizably similar to each other in certain ways, even if they can be very different in other ways. And similarly in biology, our understanding of biology is that plants or predators uh, we, we, we understand the dimensions along which we expect convergence because the, the function they're performing, the role they play sort of creates 
pressures to do it right. And then we also see the dimensions on which there's a lot of freedom to be different because those things don't matter so much and they can just be different and, and it won't cost them much and won't benefit them much either. Okay. So this is part of the challenge of understanding all the systems we think about is to see both convergence and divergence and to understand those things. So once we understand systems well enough, uh, then we can predict which things will be similar as well as which things won't. And that's what it means in part to understand these systems. And I think a more fundamental point to realize is that you know, we are humans who are, have culture that allows us to evolve and vary using culture. Our ancestors as animals mainly evolved and varied using genes, but relatively soon our descendants will just be a third sort of thing, which is just basically purely artificial creatures. <laughs> that is our descendants, they will, be, they will design themselves, they will make themselves in factories, <laughs> They will make them out of whatever material they think is most appropriate. They will redesign their minds to be whatever it suits their purposes. So um, as long as the basic competitive forces that have shaped humans and animals continues to exist, that is, as long as there are many of these descendants competing with each other, then we can actually predict a lot of things about them from that fact alone even though we can also predict a lot of the ways in which you know, they can be very different. So for example, languages, right? Um, languages can vary in an enormous number of ways, right? There, there can be a lot. One language can say snow and the other could say can right, right? You could clearly have a lot of different sounds that correspond to any one concept. So that's the way in which language can just vary, but languages also converge in terms of a limited range of kinds of semantic structures, a limited ranges of the ways concepts can be combined. And then because language is describing the actual world around us, then languages will converge because they will converge in ha each having tokens to describe the things that languages need to describe. So in the, in the last 30 years, um, we, we started the internet and we've all <laughs> kind of become, become part of this this new digital communication system, and and so can can you describe how humans have changed or evolved since the beginning of the internet, and then taking that forward, how would that that play out moving forward from here? Well, I think I want to step back farther. I would say um, there have been basically a limited number of major eras in history so far. Okay. And that we are in one of those eras and that another change may be coming soon. So the, the first era in history was the dead era before life of any sort, lasting okay. for billions of years. Okay. And then we have the era where there is life. And then at some point we start to have animals with brains and then we have a slow evolution of animals as the brains get more complicated and more elaborate. And during that era, the change is driven primarily by genes. That is, genes code say how the brain should be designed. And when you want a better brain, you have to have different genes to design a different brain. And you know, a half billion years, brains slowly evolved and got better. And then at some point, brains were complicated and, and capable enough that they could have culture. And so with culture, the brains could have an idea, an innovation, and then they could share it with another brain without going through the genes. And so in the last million years, say, humans have been able to innovate and grow and change a lot, even without necessarily changing our genes, because we pass on culture to our descendants separately from the genes. And so that's the great era of humans culture. And then about 10,000 years ago, humans with culture had a big change toward the farming era. So uh, brains doubled in size roughly every 30 million years. 
during this million years of human evolution, human population doubled roughly every quarter million years. And then in the farming era, the human population have doubled roughly every thousand years. <laughs> and so in this, this, that's a huge increase in the growth rate. And farming era was an era where we had larger social units. So the foragers before that lived in small bands of like 30 people and uh, they shared culture, but they didn't really have long distance interactions. And so with farming, we had long distance trading networks, travel and military campaigns. And we evolved by you know, changing and domesticating plants and animals. And that's the reason why we could double every thousand years during the farming era over the last 10,000 years. And then a few hundred years ago, we have the industrial revolution. And in the industrial revolution, we figured out how to double the economy roughly every 15 years. Again, a, a huge increase in the, in the growth rate. And in the industrial era, of course, we are innovating not just by so you know, passing things through trading networks, but we're also having specialized expert networks and we have a lot more capital and tools uh, you know, that we can use to assist our uh, activities and production. And the internet, to finally answer your question, is one in the sequence of the tools we've been developing during the industrial era to allow ourselves to uh, achieve many of our purposes. And of course, it's related to the computer, um, another important tool. Uh, but the introduction of the computer and the internet hasn't so far and doesn't look like it will by itself change the overall growth rate of the industrial era. We're still doubling roughly every 15 years like we have for a century or two. Uh, but sometime in the next century or two, we may well reach another transition as dramatic as these previous transitions and which the doubling time could increase by a similar factor to before, after which the economy might double every month or even faster. When, when you say doubling, you're doubling the population or? Oh, sorry. For some reason, I've got allergies here. Uh, so wealth and populations tracked each other until recently, because until recently, everybody was dirt poor. <laughs> so yeah. when the economy grew slowly, then as soon as the economy grew, the population grew to, 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 to match it. So when the population doubled every, when the economy doubled every quarter million years, it was quite easy for the population to double every quarter million years. And so everything we learned about how to do more things was taken up by more of us. And that was also true during the farming era. It's relatively easy for the population to double in a thousand years. But by the time in the industrial era where the economy doubles every 15 years, it's actually somewhat challenging for us to have the population double every 15 years. And so now we've had a divergence between population and wealth. The wealth has been growing faster than population, which is why the wealth per person has been increasing. Okay. Yeah, it looks, it looks like from a lot of demographic reports that we're actually have crested uh, the global population. So fertility is on a dramatic decline, and it's a fascinating, important question why and, and what we could do about it. Uh, but the economy is still continuing to double every 15 years, somewhat regardless of the fertility. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, interesting. Um, will will that continue then, even if the population declines substantially? Probably, but we can't be entirely sure. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, it is it is a, a worry I have. I would rather we didn't have a population decline. I think it would be better if we could increase the population. Um. Yeah, it seems like the, the big turning point was in 1969 when Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb. Um, he's from Stanford University and uh, predicting that we'd have a lot of people die of starvation in the 1970s uh, because there wasn't enough food for everybody. And, and we may have had people that died in the 1970s because there wasn't enough food. Um, but it wasn't because there wasn't enough food, it wasn't distributed properly. Um, so the, the fertility decline is actually several centuries old. So there's actually a pretty predictable path 
by which fertility falls in a society as that society gets rich. Right. And right. that's been going on for several centuries. And so that's one of the reasons for concern is it's such a reliable pattern that we see it all across the world, all across countries, that makes it harder to know how it could change. Right, right. Okay. Why I'm so excuse me. Um, so so you know when you see a very steady long-term trend like that, it makes it harder to know how it could be changed. Right. In a wide range of societies, a wide range of religions and cultures and contexts all around the world, we've seen this again, steady, same steady train that as societies get rich, they lower fertility falls. Right. And now Basically, half the countries in the world at the moment are below replacement fertility. Um, so we've just gone through um, a period of a global pandemic, and this is we this is the first pandemic where the whole world was aware of what was going on, um, and it uh, is a period of three, three years and. And essentially, this was the most expensive crisis in human history. Because um, when you add up all the money that was dumped into solving this problem, it adds up to more money than was spent in World War II. Um, how has society changed, in your opinion, as a result of that? What you might have hoped is that we would learn a lesson from it. <laughs> and be ready for bigger problems in the future. So th there are many kinds of problems that are distributed according to a power law where it has what's called a thick tail. Most of the weight is in a, in, in a rare big problems. And pandemics are like that. Wars are like that too. And so if you want to prepare for wars or pandemics, you mainly want to prepare for the biggest, worst ones because that's where most of the harm is. They don't happen very often, but when they do, they're terrible. Yeah. So that, that's a problem because they don't happen very often. We get lazy and we get blasé and we don't prepare for them. <laughs> so right. you might think that having a moderately big one would be kind of good because that would remind you that there's even bigger ones that might happen <laughs> and that would make you get ready for them. <laughs> make you like, you know, uh, take them seriously and then prepare because they're a big deal. Um, I fear we haven't, really used that, you know, use the current pandemic for that purpose very well. So think about compared to World War II. So at the beginning of World War II, the United States hadn't, you know, hadn't been in a war for a couple of decades. And the military, as often happens, gets, you know, lazy and uh, corrupt. And yeah. at the beginning of World War II, we, we started fighting and we kept losing battles. <laughs> we were lousy. And, you know, mis torpedoes didn't work. All sorts of stuff was just not working. And then they got scared and people at the top said, uh oh, we're losing. And they made some big dramatic changes and they fired people and fired contractors and kept changing things until they stopped losing because they were scared. Okay. Now, you know, similarly, you might hope in a pandemic, if we start to deal with a pandemic and it doesn't go well, if we were scared, we'd like, okay, let's change what we're doing. Let's, let's try something different. Let's, let's fire people. Let's <laughs> hire a new contractor. Let's, let's, let's work on this so we can make sure we're, we do better and that we're set up for the next time. But I don't think we did that. Nobody got fired for doing badly. Um, yeah. We just, we just did badly. And, and in fact, I'd say, you know, there's there's two harms from something like a pandemic. One is the harm from the disease itself, right? It makes people sick, they can't work, it makes them die, that's bad. Then the other harm is the all the effort you put in to prevent the first kind of harm, right? You yeah. make people distance, you you have the vaccines, you you isolate, you you know, tell them they have to set space, et cetera. You do all sorts of things to prevent, right? And so for a wide range of things in the world, you know, the, the two harms that like crime, for example, one harm of crime is people go out and commit crimes. The other harm of crime is people have to try to prevent crimes, right? You have to put locks on your doors and you have to have police patrol and then you can't trust each other as much, right? So, you know, in general, when you have bad things, there's the trade-off of the two sides, similarly in war, right? War is bad, but then in order to prevent war, you have these standing armies all the time and you have to spend a lot of money on those. <laughs> and yeah. so, 
for a lot wide range of things that, that you know the key trade-off is to have the right balance between things going wrong and the effort you put in to prevent things going wrong and there's um, a simple relationship here between these two things which is in terms of how much does one dollar of prevention uh you know how many dollars of harm does that prevent that's sort of a potency of, of prevention so for example locks on your doors right yeah. if locks are very potent then you might you know, might spend a lot more on locks on doors than we ever suffer from burglary. And that could make sense if each lock is very potent at preventing burglaries. So, so roughly the way it goes is um, if $1 of harm or prevention would prevent $10 of harm, then in, the right thing to do is actually spend 10 times as much on prevention as you suffer from harm. Because the prevention is so potent that the harm goes way down. So, um, but if one dollar of prevention only you know stops ten cents of harm, well then you only want to spend one dollar of prevention for every ten dollars of harm because your prevention just is not very effective. So part part of the criticisms that have been levied against the the overall effort to um, prevent prevent uh, the pandemic has been with the unintended consequences. Um, all the supply chain disruptions. The, the... Right. Well, so but those are costs of the prevention, right? They are consequences of the prevention, and so they count as costs of the prevention. Okay. Right. So that is, you know, at one extreme, you could have just let the disease fly through and just ignore it and just gone about and lived your lives, right? Right. That would have had a lot more people get sick and die, but then you wouldn't have been disrupting the supply chains, et cetera, so much, right? On the other extreme, you could like completely prevent it, like perhaps they did in China, by just going really overboard on prevention. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Right. And, you know, just shutting everything down and locking people in the rooms. And, you know, if you go far enough, you can you can lock, lock it down, right? And so... Again, for a wide range of problems we have, the key thing to think about is the ratio between the harms that you might suffer and the prevention effort you put in to prevent it. And you want to keep those two in the right balance. And the relative balance goes is depending on the effectiveness of prevention. So when you have something you can do that's very effective, like say vaccines, right, for polio or something, right, or, or some other rubella, right, clearly at the moment, far more harm is happening because of the vaccines than because of the actual rubella. Hardly anybody gets rubella, right? right. And so, you know, we might be spending 10 or 100 times as much on the prevention of rubella as on rubella, but because that makes sense if the vaccine is really effective at preventing rubella. You want to spend enough on it and really squash it, right? But if yeah. you do prevention and, they, and it just doesn't do very much, well, you know, that's not very useful right you might as well mainly suffer the problem so if you have a problem say you have a problem you really can't do anything about right yeah but maybe there's some symbolic thing you can do that just makes people feel like you've done something right okay right. you shouldn't do very much of that <laughs> right. do a lot of small amount of the symbolic prevention that doesn't really do anything because you know it's not really going to reduce the amount of the problem and you're just adding this extra cost yeah so, so, how, so that's the question with, with COVID, with pandemic policy. The key question is how effective was every dollar spent in prevention at reducing the harm? And how does that compare to the ratio of the prevention effort we put into the harm we suffered? So when I tried to do a back of the envelope calculation, roughly, it seemed to me that we suffered at least five times as much from prevention as we suffered from the harm itself. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, 
Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Okay. <laughs> we have so, for so so that would be justified if every dollar we spent on prevention prevented five dollars of harm from the disease. That that would be the right ratio. But when I've done surveys, nobody believes that it's that potent. People okay. don't actually believe that most of the prevention efforts were that. Now, some some of the efforts would have so say the vaccine development effort that was very potent, right? And if we had only done that, that would have been a very very effective prevention effort, right? But we did a lot more than that. Right. So how has society changed moving forward after COVID? I mean, there, there's lots of implications for um, how we think about things, how we do things, uh, how we manage. Well, so, so like I said, you know, the main thing, we failed to really learn a lesson from it. Like we didn't fire a bunch of people when things went wrong. <laughs> And, and we just did too much and we haven't learned that that was the bad thing. So I just, I don't think we did a very good job of learning from it. We just suffered under it uh, because I think people just weren't actually very scared by it. Like in World War II, people were scared. They thought, uh oh, you know, if we lose the war, then we'll be, you know, living under Germany and we don't want to do that and we better do something, right? I don't think people were really actually that scared. They, they didn't go fire people when they did things didn't work. They, they just let them stay there. The, the biggest, I think the biggest legacy of, of the pandemic for the next few decades will be the, the jump it made to remote work. Okay. So remote work was previously happening, you know, at like a 4% level. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden it's at a 40% level. Right. Uh, right. And, and that's happened for a couple of years. And now we have these firms who are trying to get people back in the office and they're struggling to do that because people don't want to go back to the office. Right. Yeah. I think they will. Over the next few decades, I think remote work will get a lot more potent and important. So we aren't very good at it. Certainly, yeah. we weren't very good at it two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it was by necessity we were thrown into it. We've been gotten, we've gotten a bit better at it over the next the last two years, but we're still kind of bad at it. So I still think most firms would probably be better off pushing people to get back to the office. That will, on average, be the most efficient thing for most firms, but it'll take a while to do. But still, the the precedent has been set here yeah. that a lot of people have tried remote work. They've seen it happen. They see it as acceptable. So we're going to now we've accelerated the timetable of a slow movement toward more remote work. And. I don't think people really realize what the main benefit of remote work is. So when you talk about remote work, the, you know, the two things people talk about is well, you get to save on the commute time and then you don't have to buy expensive downtown offices. Okay. And, and those are real, real cost savings, right. uh, but they aren't the main things. And, and the, the main cost that goes against is that it becomes harder to start new work groups and to innovate new workplace practices. So if you've got a work group, that's been staying together and has a standard way of doing things, then they can actually translate that to a remote context relatively easily and continue with the existing practices in the existing team. That's what people have seen. The hard thing <coughs> is to integrate new people into the team and to invent new work practices, to change your practices. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And so that's what we're suffering in the last two years and will suffer. The, firm, the firms that continue to have a lot of remote work will continue to find it harder to, to get new people on their teams and to train them and to promote them. And they'll find it harder to uh, invent new practices. Um, okay. So that's a big cost. And at the moment, that's probably a bigger cost than the benefit of avoiding the, the you know, downtown offices in the commute. But there's another big benefit that people don't quite realize, which is that remote work allows city-scale agglomeration economies. Oh. Agglomeration is where you get the benefits of having lots of people working together and specializing. So, so think of the difference between an oil change place where they change the oil in your car and a factory that makes cars. Okay. So the oil change place has to be kind of close to your home. And so I can't specialize very much, right? Okay. They just whoever's do doing your oil changes, they just, they don't 
you know, specialize in doing different cars differently or different times of the day or year. They, they just basically all have to be do it the same, right? Because they're close to you. And so they can't be very specialized. But the factory can be very specialized. When you make a car, you can have hundreds of people each doing a very different specialized task. And that allows an enormous division of labor and an increase in effectiveness so that you can make a car much more cost-effectively when you've got hundreds of people all together in this organized way. And so many industries are like that in the sense that the world can share an oil production facility or a car factory, and we get these huge gains in productivity because we can all do something together. So, so cities gain these agglomerations. So that is, when cities, there are all these different specialized firms that do specialized things, and they can be much better at that. And so that's why it's, you can get a lot more things done in a city than you can in a small town because it allows all this division of labor. Different people do different things. But for many kinds of tasks, like say the oil change or your plumber, they have to sort of be near lots of customers and be ready to, be, to do a task quickly. And so they can't be very specialized. But remote work will allow those jobs to get more specialized. That's the key thing. So at the moment, a plumber is a jack of all trades, right? A plumber, somebody's pipe breaks, and it has to, it, they have to be ready for any kind of pipe, right? Any, right. Any, within the nearest few square miles, whatever pipe goes wrong, they have to be ready for it. And right. if you need to extend a pipe, they have to have the kind of pipe you have to extend it, right? And so they can't specialize very much. They're, they're a jack of all trades. So plumbing has not achieved scale economies in the way, say, a car factory has. But remote work allows that to change. So with remote work, you might, you'd have an app, say the plumbing, remote work plumber would be an avatar, a robot that sat next to your pipe. But now each different task that robot did could have a different person controlling a different person from a thousand miles away who specialized in doing that one part of that task. Oh, so you, you, okay. now you can bring in a huge scale economies and agglomeration economies into specializing on these local you know, tasks that are being done. You don't need a jack of all trades who can do everything. Therefore, we can't specialize very much. You can have specialized, but do very little things, right? So one guy does the welding of the pipe. That person does it for the 10 seconds it takes to weld, and then he switches off to some other welding task. He doesn't stay there for the whole rest of the thing. He, it's just like on the card line. He welds one thing, that car goes by, he welds the next car, he welds it right. He just does the one thing. And yeah. so that's the big potential for remote work. It, it'll take decades to realize that potential. We're not near that yet, but you, but you can start to see the potential here of all these local gardeners, uh, you know, all the people around you who aren't very specialized because they need to be near, you know, the things that have to be done. And we could have a lot more specialization of those. So let me, let me ask you one final question here. The, um, uh, there's a lot of ominous signs in the economy right now. Um, a lot of things that aren't uh, looking so good moving forward. Uh, how would you, um, what's your overall assessment of the economy today and what does it look like moving forward? And, uh, and if you could weigh in on the changes happening in the crypto world, that would be helpful too. Um, so, you know, I'm talking to you with my futurist hat on. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, for being a futurist, I want to look at long-term trends and I don't want to get distracted with short-term fluctuations. Okay. So every day you open the newspaper, there's lots of articles about what happened last night. Right. But that's not the sort of thing a futurist should be looking at. A futurist right. should be looking at trends in these things, overall statistics, patterns in what happens over long periods, not short-term fluctuations. So our economy uh, for the last few centuries has been in this mode where it doubles every 15 years. And then it has a cycle of about six years where there's what's called the business cycle where it booms and busts. And that's been true for a long time. And you know we're part of the boom and bust cycle right now too. But uh, that's been a consistent boom and bust cycle again for uh, the last few centuries. So I expect it to continue and I don't get particularly concerned about whether we're in a boom or a bust at the moment. I'm interested in the long-term trends. 
in the previous farming era, they had a rise and fall of empires that would have, you know, the, on a roughly a 300 year time scale. The, uh, yeah. It doubled every thousand years and roughly every 300 years, empires would rise and fall. And people, were, I'm sure at the time, were very concerned about whether their empire was rising or falling. But in the long run, you can just say, well, yeah, empires will rise or fall. Yours might rise or fall. But in the long run, it doesn't that much matter which empires rise or fall. We have this long-term trend. So that's the way I would think about the economy. I'd more ask, what are the long-term trends that go beyond the rise and fall of any particular business cycle? Uh, but, you know, to, to answer your question, we, we, we the pandemic produced this disturbance to the economy and disturbance to supply chains, but it also produced this, in some sense, larger disturbance where people had an excuse to hand out a lot of money, and they did. Yeah. And all that money caused inflation, and then a lot of inflation caused people who don't switch their jobs to lose wages in effect, and the other people not to, and a lot of people are mad about that, and, uh, you know, and the the disruptions to the supply chain have caused shortages in particular things and those prices prices have gone way up and other things without the shortages have not and so you know that's partly the pandemic but in some sense even more the over response to it okay that's caused okay. the problems but okay. again that will fade with time the business cycle has been a consistent thing for a while and it goes up and goes down all right now if you ask about crypto, that's the sort of thing that could be a bigger long-term trend, right? It's not just a rise and fall of something. It's a purported new thing uh, that's rising. And the question is, will it grow to become a bigger thing or will it fall away? Uh, so that's a question that's been asked over and over again about many purported new things for the last few centuries, right? So if you go back and read the papers and see the kinds of things they were looking forward to happening, you'll be surprised to see they were looking for a lot of things to happen that never happened. <laughs> right. There were a lot of things they thought might happen that didn't. We look back and we see the things that did happen and we see that they saw at the very beginning. We might ask, why didn't they take that more seriously? Well, partly because there was 10 other things that they was competing for their attention with and the other 10 things didn't happen. So, you know, you have to realize that Innovation in general is lots of new things, most of which go away and die. Right. <laughs> and a smaller right. fraction of the good things last. So looking forward, you shouldn't expect most things people are hyping to be the things that last. You have to ask yourself, which are the things more likely to be the things that last? And that's hard to tell. All right. And that's the basic nature of innovation. So in crypto, uh, you know, I've been watching it for a while. I, I was an advisor for some crypto firms early on. Um, you know, the technology has certainly has potential. The main thing I've been disappointed to see, which many other people have observed, is that sort of the, the way you get respect and money in the world is to write a white paper and have an algorithm and offer to, you know, create a platform or tool. And so everybody wants to make platforms or tools, and they're all writing software to make platforms or tools with their white paper and having coin auctions to get money. And they all think their platforms and tools will be useful because somebody else will actually have the customer-facing applications that you know let ordinary people use it for useful stuff. But the somebody else's haven't been showing up. Okay. Uh, so you know, the, the field as a whole has been neglecting those customer-facing applications where ordinary people get value out of interacting with things. Everybody wants to make tools and platforms. Okay. So unfortunately, you know, if that continues for too long, then they will run out of the money they got in their coin auctions and no longer be able to afford to write software. And the whole thing will crash and die, even though some parts will last. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Bitcoin blockchain will last for the next few centuries. But okay. uh, and but you know how useful it'll be, or how large of an economy of other things built on top of it there will be. That's the big question. So so the fundamental application of just having a digital money, Bitcoin has produced that, and it, that will continue. Okay. And so, but that's a limited application, and that and the main application there is really for people who want to hide their money from governments. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you're a rich person and you're worried about getting taxed and you, and you buy some, you know, Bitcoin and you hide it somewhere and now maybe you can feel like the government can't take that away. 
Yeah. But uh, most ordinary people don't have that kind of a need for money. Yeah. Uh, so it's less clear what most people are going to do with it. And again, yeah. a lot of people told a lot of stories about all the things you could build on top of it, but so far, not a lot. And yeah. that's the big question. Okay. There's well, still time. They, they still might pull a Hail Mary and save it, but yeah. you know, time is running out. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time and energy to, uh, to talk to me tonight. And uh, this is tremendous insight into kind of the world around us. And uh, Dr. Robert Hansen, I thank you very much for being on our show tonight. Uh, hey, take care. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Thank you now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.